0: Welcome to Crush the Cargill Podcast, and uh, this week I am talking to uh, Naresh Kumar, where I'm going to be. So in the meantime, just want to let you know that we are on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, you've probably already realised that because you're already listening to this. Oh, but we're also on Patreon, so if you look up Patreon uh, and Google Crush the Cargill, you will find us and um, we would love some support to do what we do because you know we know that you love it or at least you suffer it anyway back to naresh naresh kumar is um a lord of the rings fan um he's a bit of a hobbit himself and uh he loves running in sandals an ultra runner he's run the length of new zealand in sandals or walked it and uh he's also gone the length of new zealand on a tandem bike powered by kindness and peanut butter and because that wasn't far enough he decided to go from India to Germany as well campaigning against uh, human trafficking so got some really good stories from Naresh over to the interview this is it this is what if I take one more step it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been
1: Remember what Bilbo
0: used to say It's a dangerous business Frodo Going out your door You step onto the road And if you don't keep your feet There's no knowing where you might be swept off to
1: Hey Steve, how are you? Hey, good, how are you? I'm doing great. That's a great map on the wall there. Oh <laughs> you recognize it. Oh yeah. I mean shed blood and tears to make that race happen. So how can I forget that? That's awesome. Oh Without you yeah. have that on the wall.
0: Yeah, you're gonna have to talk to me about that. I did um I did uh uh to uh
1: there and back. Okay, good. So you are the bat, nice. Yep.
0: Yeah. So um anyway, Naresh Kumath. Welcome to the Crush the Cargo podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, how you well, been?
0: Yeah, you've probably never heard of us, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: so um, I'm, I met you briefly um, at the Naseby, um, Great Naseby Water Race, maybe right. three, three years ago?
1: Yeah, I think yeah, 2017. Man, yeah, well,
0: wow. four years ago. And, yeah. um, and and uh, I'd already heard of you because you'd done the um, Te Araroa in sandals. Right. And
1: that was quite famous at the time. Yeah, because, um, yeah, it was 2014 when I completed uh, Te Araroa all in sandals. That was yeah. quite an adventure. 2014.
0: So yeah. how, how long, yeah, what what,
1: what brought you there? <laughs> uh, a short answer is Lord of the Rings. Um, I grew up in Chennai, uh, in the suburb in South India, and um, yeah, in a very humble beginning. And when I saw the movie for the first time, I don't know, you know, the scenery and the surrounding. It just makes you feel unreal, you know, it's like, oh, if if there is a country like that, I want to move there. that that's pretty much the only reason why my uh, New Zealand got on my radar. But then, you know, with all my qualifications and stuff, It was um, a little bit easy for me to apply for immigration and move there. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. The first adventure, I landed in Auckland, hitchhiked all the way to Cape Ranga and um, ran the length of uh, New Zealand on the Te Arao in just sandals. I just wanted to keep it just like a Hobbit style, as close as possible.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I I actually wear running sandals too, so that that appeals to me. So how long were you in New Zealand before you got to Cape Ranga?
1: Um, just like two days. That's it. So that yeah. was your
0: first visit to New
1: Zealand. You just immediately went to Cape Wrang and started a trail. Yeah. This is like the country of my dreams yeah. that I pretty much left everything behind to move there. I don't know. I just didn't want to compare with anything my experiences. I just want to have that first hand experience of seeing the country. Yeah. And uh, that was like one of the best decisions because I think more than the scenery uh, and uh, how beautiful the country is, I think it's like, you know, I was just blown away with how beautiful the people were. It was the kindness and hospitality unlike anything I've ever experienced. So that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So um, how long did it take you to do the trail? Uh, I think just about three months. I guess just under three months, 84, 80 days or 82 days. So that's pretty quick going as well. Right. And also the, the weather that year was just unreal. Um, yeah. I started uh, pretty late, like, you know, in like September, was hoping to finish pretty soon. But the, the, the winter was like early onset of it. And uh, it was brutal. Yeah. Uh, I sh- sh- share some pictures of why you pass uh, the same year before the year before it was all beautiful green and black. But when I was going there, it was like winter conditions. And on a sandal, it makes it like quite challenging.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. <laughs> so had you ever experienced anything like that before? Like That's right. Um, uh,
1: it really humbles you, you know, coming from the States uh, where everything is nice and well paved. Uh, there are a lot of uh, turn uh, switchbacks, uh, even if it's like steep elevation, you know, it's like, you know, The trails in the US is like interstate of trails. Everything is nicely maintained and stuff. But when you come to New Zealand with that expectation, you know, TRO, they just have these pipes, like orange pipes on a pole on top of a mountain. And then you look for the next one and you figure out how to get there. Uh, That was like, you know, pretty challenging. A lot of scree crossings. It just goes straight up and straight down. Just makes you think why kiwis are one of the strongest people. Because there's no trails for them. They just make their own trail.
0: Yeah. Well, you've kind of been nicknamed a
1: Kiwi since then, though, haven't you? Yeah, it's been like super humbling, you know, with all the work that I've been doing, yeah. everything that I've been doing. Um, it's very generous of the Kiwis. They accepted me as one of their own.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Hey, um, can we backtrack a wee bit? You said you brought yeah. up in, in humble beginnings in Chennai.
1: What was, can you tell us a bit about that? Um, you know, it's just like, you know, if you watch like Slumdog Millionaire, it's that kind of a lifestyle, right? So, um, maybe like 350 square feet, you have four people living in it. It's like a pigeonhole kind of place. Yeah. Um, like going to the toilet, you get out, there's like 10 people lined up with a bucket in their hand. You go and line up. So that's how you share that tiny pigeonhole kind of a place. Um, you, know, you get raised in like, you know, a really bad neighborhood. Uh, and that comes with its own uh, disadvantages. You're really at the downside of advantage. Um, Education, everything becomes like very challenging. Um, My city alone, you know, Chennai alone has the population of like 7 million people. That's like over a population of New Zealand, all in just one city. So with more people, the challenges of like getting anything, you know, resources, government grants, everything is quite challenging. So. Either you accept your upbringing and this is your situation and you go on with your life or you're just forced to fold your sleeves and put on the best fight possible to become anything, to get anywhere.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So yeah, your education is your only passport to escape poverty. There's nothing else. There's no heritage, no money, nothing. So you work hard because even working hard is not enough because there's a million people ready to do that job for the same money. to uh work hard and you know so i went to a very small missionary school even that you know we couldn't afford every three months once every three months the fee was about like three dollars and that was like very basic maintenance fee and your name gets always called in the school as a defaulter um yeah i mean you know there was a lot of things that i wish i had but you just don't complain and um Yeah, ended up getting a scholarship to become, uh, to study engineering in a prestigious university in India. And uh, then picked up work, uh, worked in the IT industry ever since. That journey took me to the US. So it was mostly survival. Uh, You wanna get better so that your family can become better. You wanna make sure they have a roof on their head, enough food on the plate to take care of themselves. So, yeah, you have a lot of desires. You want to become like an architect. You want to become a mountaineer. You want you have a lot of ideas, but all that is not going to put food on the plate. Of course, you're living your life, but if someone, you know, the, when survival is in question, all your wants gets to the side roads, you know, your needs need to be met. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, when, so once everything was like taken care in a much decent way, I don't know, it was like the desire to live my life. And uh, so that was, again, a biggest decision, right? You work so hard to get to where you are in California. But then also the desire to live is so big that I knew that if I'm going to sit there, I'm never going to do anything. My life is going to be sitting in front of a computer. Of course, I was best at what I was doing, but it was not what I really needed. Mm. Yeah, quit my job. And um, yeah, quit my job in 2014. Yeah, almost like six years, time just flew by. And um, one of the best decisions I've ever made.
0: Really? Yeah. So so, so you got the slumdog part, but you forgot the millionaire part.
1: <laughs> There's no millions. I think I'm more happy sleeping in my million star hotel, sleeping under the stars. Yeah. Uh, I think happiness is just a, a place. It's not about like how much you have in the bank account. And I think you feel really like a million bucks when uh, you can put in your effort not only to live your life to the fullest but um, something good comes out of it that you can help other people yeah. and when they hold their hands together and say thank you for helping them in any way possible yeah that makes you like the million bucks right there yeah yeah so when did you quit your job uh, that was in june of 2014 2014 so that's when you came to new zealand uh, yeah but J- July August I was training in uh, Nepal and uh, Madras uh, with some training for Tearoa and by September I was in New Zealand.
0: Yeah yeah so how did
1: you how did you live how did you survive when you got to New Zealand? Uh, working because you know my skill is really helpful so I worked as a project manager mm-hmm. and a project consultant for a lot of our outdoor brands and a lot of like companies like you know I was working for this company, which was helping to build the Queenstown airport website, yeah. a bunch of tourism websites and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, you just pick up jobs. And uh, with my experience, it's, it never was uh, a big challenge, especially with the website. I just walk around Queenstown asking if they wanted help. Everyone wants help with like web and social media and stuff. So it was always good to pick up jobs, but also it wasn't always about a career. I was just making enough to take care of myself, my family, uh, the charities that I was supporting and just to basically take care, feed my dreams. I had like plans to go to Europe and Australia and a lot of adventures in India to Europe and all those places. So yeah, you just work along the way and pay the bills and pay for your dreams.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned charities you're supporting. Because that's been a big thing of what you've been doing, isn't it? Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, especially when I left my job and moved uh, to New Zealand, the transition uh, took me to through Nepal, Mm. and uh, that's where I had my sad experience. I'm glad it happened. When an elderly looking man approached me, thinking I was like a foreigner, asking, uh, soliciting for drugs and alcohol, and then also like you know offering uh, sex with young girls. And he was taking real big, good pride that he has, his portfolio has one of some of the youngest girls in the country and he can like bring them to my hotel and take them back. Almost sounded like food delivery, right? You just tell them what you want and they bring them to you. Um, so you you really see the, uh, the ugly side of uh, human trafficking and how humans are being sold as a product on the streets only to be used and thrown away like vulnerable people. So I read more about it and then I um, I saw the statistics about human trafficking like how in this age and generation 40 million people are in slavery with like 70 to 80 percent of them being women and children uh, yeah I mean you know that experience was like a big motivation for me to take this up as a cause and I don't know fight for them who can't fight for themselves um not just sex trafficking but you know in third world countries especially in the, in my country bonded labor slavery is like a huge uh, factor because of uh, education because most of them are uneducated let's say the father uh, borrows some money from some big landlord and if they're not able to pay back due to failed monsoons or whatever happens um, the rich guys would be so influential with political and police power that they would just come and say okay to pay back you and your family has to work for no matter how long to pay back the debts, and they wouldn't tell you how much it is. Mm-hmm. So you're just there for generations working for them. Anytime you raise a question saying, What do I owe? What is the interest? You only get beat up. So bonded labor slavery is so common. So this slavery in all forms and fashion and uh, adventure was a great way to uh, tell the story to people and in turn raise funds and awareness.
0: Mm. Yeah, because I mean, you've managed to incorporate adventure with the fundraising. Right. Yeah.
1: So when I was in New Zealand for Te Aroa, I partnered with uh, Tear Fund in uh, New Zealand. Uh, it's a phenomenal organization in New Zealand uh, fighting global human trafficking issues. Uh, I partnered with them, and it's also a very unique platform that you get. Everyone is really impressed with what you do, right? When you when they see you running across New Zealand in winter, in sandals. Uh, besides the impressed part, the first question most of them ask is, "Why are you doing this?" Yeah. You know, it's not like you're going to get some sponsorship and like big contract or anything. So they want to know the why, and uh, that. Platform was just perfect for me to explain the why part of it, like why I'm doing it. Uh, The suffering may be a a bit huge running across New Zealand, but it's nothing compared to what these people enslaved go through every single day with no light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I got invited to speak in so many schools and libraries and churches, rotary clubs, organizations. So besides motivating them, inspiring them to push their limits and like, you know, do something that they've never done before also there's always a human part to it like we all have a responsibility in every form and fashion to help one another and i tell them why this should be a main uh, issue that they should be like focusing on and uh, so yeah that really helped to um, raise a lot of funds actually yeah because it's
0: um yeah you'd be you'd be meeting them in a different way than they'd be used to so um, you know, right. Te- Teer fund, Teer fund gets a lot of press in churches, but it doesn't get many much press on the trails of Te <laughs> right.
1: Correct. Like, you know, you really reach out to the far people, like, who have never heard about all these issues, especially. So they're very kind people who host you, take care of you, and they're sitting and listening to this problem. And uh, their way of supporting my expedition, when they say, what can we do to help? I'm like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm well set. You know, I have everything. I have enough peanut butter in my bags and I have enough uh, legs, you know, to run through. But if you really want to support, here's my link. You can, every dollar matters. So you can go and donate. And um, like I said, you know, Kiwis are one of the most kindest and generous people, you know, be it opening their hearts or wallet. They are one of the nicest, nicest people.
0: What are some of the, the best
1: stories of uh, Kiwi hospitality you got from the trail? Um, Kiwi Hospital, the very first, uh, trip on the run across New Zealand, uh, it was just after, um, maybe like 300 kilometers, um, I got through this crazy, um, mud, shoe-sucking mud, and, you know, it was one of the terrible days, you know, I always wanted to, like, give up. It was almost like 11 in the night when we finally hit the a dirt road and was so happy that we were on, like, a flat ground. Uh, as I was walking through I saw this house and started pouring rain I I didn't know what to do I had no other choice but to ask for help if they have like a a cow shed I thought I'll just put my tent and sleep there because it was sideways rain cold I went and knocked the door and, and a very elderly looking lady you know maybe in her 60s or 70s opened the door and she didn't even ask me like you know who are you what are you doing at this time nothing all she did was like you know it's raining so bad, hard outside. What are you doing here? Leave your back here and just uh, come towards the back door. And I was like, wow, you know, no questions. My, my, my bag was pretty muddy. So I left it out and I went around the house through the bag and uh, she opened the back door with a towel in her hand saying like you know just give us like 10 minutes the water would be ready it's like one of those old school geezer oh wow Uh, the shower would be ready so just go and shower and we'll talk everything later and -hmm. her husband who must be in in his like 70s maybe so they were already asleep but they woke up wow by the time i got out of the shower real quick uh, whatever leftover they had they set up a nice table and they were just sitting there okay, eat, you know, you can, you can tell your story later, you look like you really need some food, so I had my food, and then, you know, we were just sharing some stories, telling them who I am, what I'm doing, um, and then uh, they made me, like, this beautiful bed, light in the living room, I mean, the, pretty much the only thing that they don't, they didn't do that day was tucking me in the bed and kissing me good night, <laughs> right and then you're really good <laughs> right and then you're like listening to that uh, wind and rain outside and you're nicely tucked up in the nice bed with your tummy full of like the best fish and chips and all the good food it just makes you wonder like you know what kind of love and kindness is this like you know I've never seen that before yeah. I've never experienced something like that and that was just the second day of my Roa experience oh, wow. and um yeah I've, I've traversed across New Zealand, human power, top to bottom, three times. Uh, one time was running, one time was biking, and one time was on a tandem. Um, every single time, your experience just get blown away. There's so many stories.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, how did you pick up? Tell me about the tandem.
1: How did you get into that? So after the run, it was more like, oh, he's. We heard about this guy who's running let's support him. But I wanted something more than that. You know, I wanted people to join me on this adventure and to go with you and push their limits in any relatively small way possible. And that's when I was, um, before coming to New Zealand, I was in Alaska uh, attending a friend's wedding. And my friend's uncle uh, was big into tandem bikes. And he was telling me his story about how he'd go into his neighborhood. With a tandem picking up the local grocery man local milkman local newspaper boy and he'll ask them their story while going on this we ride Mm -hmm. it sounded like super fascinating and then when i rode the tandem for the first time as a stoker at the back it was like a petrifying experience because you lose complete control you don't see what's ahead of you um all you see is the back of the guy who's riding in the front and you lose complete freedom with no brakes I don't know, the metaphor was perfect, what it feels like to be trafficked, to not have control in a very nice and fun and adventurous way. Exactly. So I came back to New Zealand after a bit of a work trip and I told Teofan, this is my adventure. I'm gonna go back to Cape Ranga with a tandem and I'm gonna ride to Bluff picking up random strangers. And they laughed so hard, every single <laughs> person the idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like, you look at you. It's not like they were making a racist comment, but you know, like dark, big beard. You've seen some of my pictures, like, you know, really big beard and long hair, skinny Indian boy. Man, we don't know how many people are going to accept that invitation, but if you feel uh, moved to do that, sure, uh, go give it a shot. And um, everything just fell in place, you know, a bike barn, a sponsored a bicycle, um, just needed enough peanut butter on the back, and just like went straight to Cape Ranga. And uh, even the very first day, right, I'm standing at the lighthouse, a good friend uh, helped me all the way to get to the start line with a tandem. And then um, I'm like, you know, I'm not gonna start this adventure by myself. I'm gonna wait as long as it takes and I'm gonna ride with someone. As I was waiting at the lighthouse in Cape Ranga, this uh, family was traveling in an RV and uh, they approached me asking, Uh, You look all packed up. What's your plan? Uh, Where you headed? I said, I'm heading to Bluff. And obviously, the next question is, where's your girlfriend? Because it's a tandem. (laughs) Obviously, someone is there with you because it's fully loaded. I'm like, well, there's no girlfriend and no friend, but will you be my friend? And will you help me to accomplish this expedition and mission? Because it's a collective adventure. And then they're immediately asking questions, right? So what is this all about? And I'm like, I'll tell you all about it. I don't need your money. I don't need your wallet. All I need is your energy and a little bit of time to help me out to get to bluff. Anyway, any kilometers, I'll take it. So he didn't even hesitate. He gave his keys to uh, the RV keys to the wife. And he said, uh, just meet us like 40 kilometers from here. There's a cafe and uh, we'll catch up there. And at least I was trained, he was in his cargo pants and cotton shirt, sitting there huffing and puffing because it kind of getting like hilly region when you're coming out of Cape Ranga into town. Yeah. And uh, I was just telling him about the story, you know, like what I experienced, why we should be doing this thing. And by the time we got down to the cafe, uh, he filled up my backpack with all the bananas and fruits and water. And he said like, you know, thank you for making me a part of this expedition. And within 10 minutes of him taking off, there was a $450 donation, first donation made. That was my first passenger who also made the first donation. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, I mean, I think everyone was doubting this mission Who's going to ride with me. I had a, about like 135 people who rode on this bike with me. And the best part, I didn't spend a dollar for accommodation the entire way. It took me about like, I think 35 or 45 days to do this whole thing. And not a single dollar after a week i just wanted like so my bike tandem bike was named kindness so i wanted to ride kindness entirely relying on the kindness of people yeah. so that's why i always say my journey was fueled by kindness and a lot of peanut butter <laughs> and uh, it was amazing you know even the one hostel that i stayed at uh, you know you usually they ask you to pay and check out the next day. And uh, when I was checking out this receptionist, she just comes around and gave like a real tight hug and said like, you know, good luck. You know, you'll have such a long way to go. This is a tiny contribution from us to help you in your adventure. I said like, I don't want that. Whatever was the money, I'm gonna put that money on your behalf into the charity. So um, yeah, it was amazing. Even till the last moment, my goal was to raise uh, $20,000, Steve. And just I was about to Queenstown, maybe just after Queenstown, I was in Alexandra and I got an email from this stranger saying, um, I've been following your story and I just read in Herald, but I wish I could ride with you, but she was in Auckland. So here's what she said. She said, if you reach your goal by the time you get to bluff, I will match every single dollar of donation everyone has ever made which means she was gonna match the donation and make it 40,000 of 20,000. So instead of just going from Alexandra to um, a straight to Bluff, which was about like 350K, I had to make like a round trip, go all the way to Dunedin and then go to Bluff because I was still short of raising $3,000. Yeah. So that's when I was really asking people, like, you know, if you give $10 today, just imagine you have given 20 because this random stranger is gonna match every single donation. Uh, I say random stranger because I don't even know her. She wanted to be completely anonymous and I respect that. But, you know, in the Bible, we read, you know, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But uh, there are people who exist in this world like that who have such big heart. And as soon as I touch the bluff sign, um, I carry a GPS and they track me where I am. Uh, So there was a link on my website called Where is Kindness? And they can track me where I am. And as soon as I touched Bluff Sign, there was a $20,000 on a tier funds account. So we ended up raising nearly like $43,000 in that 35 days. And uh, the best part was like, you know, 135 people. Uh, Guess who was my last passenger who rode the bike? Hey, hey. Tim Shadbolt. Oh. Of course <laughs> <laughs> he was there at the finish line when I f- ran across New Zealand and honored me with a nice uh, a plaque uh, and uh, uh, his team uh, heard about what I was doing uh, through Tia and his his personal assistant was there, he brought him there and yeah, Tim was just like wearing his helmet and uh, the last I think ten kilometers or fifteen kilometers we were riding together and finished. It's one of the nicest men who, He went on a social media shared about this adventure and helped raise awareness in a big way so that was like one of the fascinating experience just shatters people's uh, opinion you know that uh, humanity still exists that i was able to ride across new zealand without spending a dollar on accommodation i've so many families they're like family to me now like i have like uncle aunties grandma grandpas nephew nieces across new zealand it's such a beautiful and um, humbling experience. Yeah. I was actually,
0: um, just today, I was hanging out with Jamie Sinclair. Oh, cool. How's he doing? So he, he's good. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's retired. He's become a full-time race director. Right. He doesn't like me calling him that.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, a- Aileen and Jamie, you know, every time I go, they would just give their house keys. Whenever I go there, I stay there. We cook so much curries, eat, drink lots of beer, yeah, um, I miss them so much. Well, kindest people that you will ever meet. Oh, they're wonderful.
0: Yeah. Well, he was helping uh, track clearing for a race that I'm I'm organizing.
1: Oh, cool. So he's very still cool. kind. He's still very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Jamie joined me on the adventure too. He was riding with me on one of the toughest sections. So oh, on the frequency yeah. uh, to kindness uh, uh, across New Zealand, uh, Jamie did like a big section. He did about like 70, 75K section with me. Yeah, came and rode the bike with me.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. So, um, what happened after doing
1: that in New Zealand? What, what did you get up to then? Um, after that, you know, it's it's about like you know being uh, hanging out with Gary Cantrell all the time. He always says a challenge can be a real challenge unless there's a possibility of failure. Yeah, and about doing something more so you can really dig deep and find what you can really uh, do it so, um, so sorry, i just 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 have to say for our listeners that gary
0: Kentrell
1: is okay. another name like yeah, yeah. Another infamous race director of the barclay marathons and uh, lots of other crazy ultra marathons including backyard ultra and all the races um yeah so after that i did a indie pack uh, across australia i was going to do that on a tandem but when the race got canceled due to an ongoing inquest because of a bicyclist who got killed in an accident the year before. Uh, we did it unofficially. So I ended up riding the bike on a push bike from Perth all the way to uh, Sydney. And that following year, uh, I, was, I was speaking, sharing this experience across New Zealand, all over the globe. And uh, a Rotary Club, where I was sharing the story, they gave me this idea saying, Rotary Club, you know, being people, being very philanthropic and very giving, and they help out a lot of people. So they said uh, the conference, uh, they they organize a world convention every year in, in a destination. So that year, 2020 was, 2019 was gonna be in Hamburg, Germany.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so yeah, I the plan was uh, to ride my bike from Chennai, India, all the way to um, Hamburg, Germany, crossing like 13 countries across two continents. Uh, on a tandem, uh, raising funds for helping mainly the uh, people in the uh, trapped and wandered labor slavery, and the funds we were going to raise was going to help them uh, with the rescue efforts, uh, but mainly also the empowerment efforts, giving them like a sustainable lifestyle so they can live a life of dignity instead of just relying on charity all the time. So that was just uh, another phenomenal experience.
0: Yeah. What. What. Sorry, I'm a bit speechless here. What made you think of the idea of biking from Chennai to Hamburg?
1: So because this conference was going to be in Hamburg, it's not just like, you know, you're going to meet one or two people. This is like about 40,000 people from all over the world are going to gather in Hamburg, Germany, on a three day big convention. So while every single delegate, 40,000 of them flew from their hometown to attend the conference, I was the only guy who rode a bike all the way from his home country to attend this conference. So that was like a huge platform that I was gonna get. Uh, Rotary is phenomenal because um, they're one of the main reasons why polio has become non-existent. The polio vaccines were given at a big scale in collaboration with Bill Gates and stuff. So, I mean, we are we are trying to solve the human trafficking as a problem, right? And it's not like one man's problem. It's not like one man raising a hundred thousand dollars is not gonna solve the problem. You know, we need a lot of like-minded people to join hands and fight. Yeah. So I thought this was like a perfect uh, forum for me to go and speak. And I just didn't wanna fly there and make a presentation and walk away. I really wanted to like, you know, touch and impact people along the way and get there and make a presentation. So that was the goal. When I started in February 27, my goal was to get there just before the conference was gonna start, which was gonna be on the June 5th. So I timed it perfectly to be there on the day of the conference. And uh, it was amazing, you know, the three-day conference While everyone was suit up, walking around in their suit, I was the only guy in bike shorts and shirt, pushing a tandem bike everywhere, making presentation. And that was like, you know, uh, an amazing experience. Helps to share and get a lot more people to join you in this fight.
0: Yeah. So how did you manage to plan it so you get there on the right day, going through 13
1: countries? You can't. That was like the big problem. Um, I was training a lot, but... Being like, you know, an Indian passport holder yeah. it is the first big challenge. I mean, you have no idea how good of a passport you have, uh, Steve. Like tomorrow, if you have to go to France, you don't need to deal with visas. You buy a ticket and you just go. Mm. It would cost me at least like $150 and three weeks of uh, waiting just to get my visa. And there's no guarantee I may or may not get it. So that's one disadvantage with my uh, passport. So sorting all the visas and documents, and um, I was really trying to keep it all overland. So I wanna try and get through Pakistan. Unfortunately, no, we don't really have like a very good relationship and the bureaucracy and the documentation to get a Pakistan visa as an Indian passport holder is so hard. So you plan uh, so much, you kind of have a tentative route that you, you are gonna go through, but you're not going to stick to it, you know, the road that you want to go through. It's not like everything was pre-planned. So by the time I got to Mumbai, uh, my hopes and dreams of getting through Pakistan was gone. But then you are like sitting there in Mumbai for five days, figuring out what to do next. And I didn't want to like, you know, fly. You're still still in South India. Yeah, I'm still in India. So it took me like five, four, four and a half days to get from my hometown to Mumbai. And then, um, so over there, I, the, the closest country that I could fly to was Oman. And from Oman, I could get into UAE and then I could get in a container ship to go to Iran because I didn't want to go through Saudi Arabia. Eventually, I'll hit Iraq and Syria, which is close borders anyway, because of all the war situation there. And um, so, yeah, you, you're just like, you know, figuring out along the way. Sitting in Mumbai, I remember standing at the Iranian embassy, applying for visa, and they're not like very structured, you don't get information until you go there. So I remember standing at the embassy on a Thursday, and they're closed on Friday for prayers, and uh, Monday they were closed for some official um, meetings. So Thursday was my only opportunity, so I went there, stood in line, gave my papers, and they were like, oh, but you need to give your chest X-ray and tuberculosis certificate and medical certificate. They closed the office at two o'clock. The officer tells me this at 12 o'clock and thank God I was a runner. I dropped <laughs> everything there, ran to the closest hospital as fast as I could, huffing and puffing, tell them what I need. And they take all my blood work and everything. And I'm begging them to give the results in an hour and i'm running back to the embassy with like 10 minutes to close submitting all my documents and then they were like okay you know all my all your documents are good uh, we will send the details in an email and that's it so then there's this big uncertainty right you're flying to oman not knowing if your visa is going to go through if your visa doesn't go through then you have to fly another big section to cross iran But, you know, things always happen for good. Um, I went to Oman, it's a two hour flight to Oman. But the challenge is like, you know, packing the tandem. It's not, you can't break it in two, it didn't have the couplers. So you're taking two bike box, breaking the one box in half and making it like a big, big box, begging the airline to take it with you as a a check-in bag instead of like a cargo. Um, A lot of people came along, helped. And by the time I got to Oman and got into UAE, my Iranian visa came through. So these are the things that people don't see when they see that you finished an adventure, even the documentary that recently got out, they don't see you running with papers and medical reports between the embassy and the hospitals, uh, standing in front of embassies, waiting for these visas and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's, that was always the hard part. You know, when I started, Getting to the start line was like, I'm like, finally I can just start because there was so much of like, you know, preparation that goes into it. Then, uh, yeah, biked across Iran, which was another fascinating, mind-blowing experience. And then, yeah, it took me like um, almost uh, 72, 74 days on the saddle to bike uh, 8,646 kilometers and um, uh, 180 people joined me on that expedition from 18 different countries. Well, what was it like biking through Iran? Um, I mean, amazing. I mean, everyone should go to Iran at least once in their lifetime just to experience the Persian hospitality. I thought people were like too good in New Zealand. I think, you know, Iranians beat them. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, my, I say that because of the main thing is communication, right? Uh, in New Zealand, I got a chance to explain who I am, what I'm doing. There was a communication, you know, I could really make myself clear what I was doing. But in Iran, when everyone is speaking Persian or Pashto, uh, like an Afghani language, that crossing across Iran taught me that language is never a barrier for human connection. You can't say I don't speak the language, so it was very hard for me to connect. But uh, the key is a vulnerability, you know, vulnerability is the key to human connection. So these people don't know who I am. I'm not able to explain what I'm doing, nothing. So they see you riding on the road or even if on some rough sections, you'll be pushing your bike. They'll see you going so fast that they'll go home fill up their, some water, get some jug of cold milk, some food, some bread and egg and omelette, and they'll follow you. And they'll be like speaking in Persian saying, I, I think they're saying, oh, we saw you going to our house, but we couldn't stop you. We just brought you some bread and food for your trip. And they just nicely wrap it up in a nice bag and give it to you. Um, so many people just open up their doors. Even if you sit under a tree in a small village just to rest because it's so hot. This three-year-old child comes running to me with like a big ice cold um, bottle of milk. So he saw me and he just runs to the house, opens the fridge and just brings the milk to me. Then you're like, who taught this child? Because worldwide the kids would be like hiding from strangers, but here even a child knows that you know he's a stranger and I wanna be friendly and helpful to him in any way possible. And uh, they also taught me that the most uh, uh, generous people were the most poor people. I've had a family when it was again, late in the night, I had no place to go and they saw me, my bike light. They opened the door and they just like asked me to get in immediately. I walked in and they already had their plates set. You sit on the floor and eat, no one can afford like dining tables and stuff. And there was four, four plates with food in it already magically a fifth plate came and they didn't have any more food there's no leftovers they pretty much picked up some food from each of their plate and they put some food in my plate even kids you know like a four-year-old had like an egg on his plate he put that on my plate and they're like no please eat you know this is all we have but we want you to eat and you know get some rest and you can go tomorrow uh, yeah well, one of the best 18 days unforgettable 18 days of my life that's how long it took me to bike 2200 kilometers across iran um i think in persian hospitality uh, they were saying like you know like why do you guys treat so uh, good like you know the people especially strangers they say that in their culture it's more like strangers are like a jewel gift of god it's more like god knocking at your door and saying take care of this person he's my child I give him your responsibility I want him to be taken care of so that's how they take good good care of you they take care of you that you know that you have everything when you're leaving from there like even this family that was taking care of me the next day morning when I was uh, looking at my bag and I saw half my dirty clothes were missing so even before I woke up this lady woke up and uh, she hand washed all my dirty dirty clothes and uh, she was using that as an excuse. You know, she was like, since your clothes are drying out there, this gives us an excuse to keep, a, keep you here for lunch. Otherwise you'll run <laughs> away from here. Um, that, was, that was definitely the hardest part of the journey. You know, the next day when you leave, the whole family steps out. They're like waving at you. Some of them are like crying, asking when are you going to come back ever again? Mm-hmm. So having to say goodbye to them mm-hmm. uh, and also knowing that, there's a good chance that I'll never ever meet them. But here I am sharing that story two years after that expedition got over. It changes you as a person, uh, how um, they were giving me everything without judging me in any uh, tiny possible way. Uh, Most of them are like, you know, covered. They're very conservative Muslim country. So they have the scarf and like face covered. So when they take that off, they take that off only in front of their kids or brother or husband or elders in the family. So when you are with them and they take that off, you are accepted into the family. They treat you as family. And most of them, some of them eat, put like a big plate and you eat from the same plate. So that's as close as you can get in the inside trustworthy circle of the family. They treat you as their own. Yeah. Um, so yeah, experiences like that, you know, especially with like a big beard and looking crazy homeless kind of a person um yeah when they treat you with that kindness it just teaches you a lesson how you ought to take care of one another without any kind of judgment
0: so you didn't know you were going to get that sort of treatment were you you scared beforehand
1: were you nervous oh yeah for sure you know i was so nervous mainly being thinking what am i going to do you know in all the expeditions that i've done before in the US or Europe or New Zealand or Australia, I could explain what I want. Yeah. Even in Iran or Turkey or somewhere, even if I dial the emergency number, they speak only in the local language. I can't even explain what kind of trouble that I am in. And you can't even read the language. You can't even read the sign. You can't even read the numbers. Even the numbers are in Persian script and Turkish script. So you don't even know what's one and two and three. So you see some sign, it says 25 kilometers you have no idea what it is. Yeah. So you are like looking at the Turkish numer- numerals and you're like, oh, this letter, ah, that explains it's 25. Yeah. Um, so yeah, with this kind of a thing, you were just thinking, what am I going to do in countries that I don't speak that same language? Um, but that got shattered after the first few weeks of uh, going through Iran and Oman and UAE and Turkey. Even in Europe, you know, people are so nice and kind.
0: Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool, though. I mean, um, you say it must have taken quite a while for that idea to be shattered. And you had to
1: stick at it for that time. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And kindness and help comes from in the middle of nowhere. You know, when you have no water, no food, a truck would just pull over. It's like a, a truck driver driving a semi-big lorry truck. And he would get down and he would say, salam, I like, hello. And then he would he would just give up his lunch. He would just pack it up and he would say something that I have no idea what it is. I use a lot of Google Translate when there's a good reception. Yeah. Yeah. So I speak in the language, it converts into that script. Then I put the microphone in front of them, it converts it to English. It's not really perfect, but it kind of helps sometimes. But every single time when I see someone putting their blinkers, it's like you could just drive you know who cares some guy is riding a bike who cares but they care you know they pull over and they want to stop and ask questions and i think it's mostly the curiosity that also draw a lot of people to my uh, on my way yeah you're in the middle of nowhere on a big tandem fully loaded riding by yourself so every single person always by default assumes that the girlfriend broke up with you you're <laughs> <a fat soul.
0: laughs>
1: riding all alone on this big adventure or maybe you had a fight fight with your friend he left you and you're just on this you're the sad soul going on this long journey but, all by yourself so it's kind of it's kind of
0: vulnerability again though isn't it so because right. of vulnerability they don't feel threatened by you
1: at all and they're exactly to, to help right so they're like what is this guy gonna do? It's not like I'm on a motorbike or on a car. Yeah. I'm riding a, a heavy bicycle in the middle of nowhere, a skinny looking boy. They're like, there's no harm from him. Maybe it's from them, but no harm from them. Yeah. And uh, it, it opens up this beautiful, amazing uh, human connection, Steve, that unlike anything, it never happens to you. I mean, that's one of the reason why I love riding a tandem all by myself because it draws people to you. You don't have to break the ice. The ice gets broken and they come drawing to you, asking, why are you doing this? And the next next minute, if they're driving a car, they'll give the keys to the person and they'll jump on the car. Mostly it'll be the families. If there's a family of six in the car, they'll all take turns. And before you know, you've ridden 150 <laughs> kilometers with the family. Well, the Acon's probably broken down on the car, so it's more comfortable on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> And a lot of them drive motorbikes in uh, these countries. That's, they can't afford cars. So if it's motorbike, uh, friends take turns. And uh, before you know, it's like 20, 40 kilometers. And if it's towards the end of the day, the ride mostly ends with the person and where he's living. They're like, oh, my house is not too far. I want to take you home. Let's go straight to the house. Yeah. And then you go there. You're not like a stranger. This is like already you know he's like my friend because we've been riding for the last two hours we know about everything about everything we are sharing stories and adventures it connects you and makes you feel like you've been friends for the last 30 years yeah. and he's going home and introducing you to your mother and father like you know i saw this guy naresh is this naresh is that we did this together and the parents are accepting of you right away and the next minute you know they're like stay here for three days we want to take you to all these places, show you all these places. We want to take you to all these restaurants and feed you. And then you have to be like, you're so sad that you have to say no to this real welcome greeting because you have a mission. You have to get to Germany within a certain date and time.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, I,
0: I, can't, I can't help thinking you've found a recipe for world peace here. But, um <laughs> <laughs>
1: That was the thing, you know, some days when I was not surrounded by people, it really feels peaceful, just pitching a tent in the middle of nowhere and you're sleeping. Sometimes, sometimes it gets exhausting. You know, you're sharing nonstop all the time. After you ride like a hundred mile a day, you just wanna close your eyes and sleep, uh, post something on the web and social media, fundraising, a lot of things. So that's one thing, you know, people always ask, oh, you went so far all alone didn't you get bored I had no time to get bored right right yeah oh. I, know, I understand and uh, social media is a great way that's the only reason why I prefer uh, social media because everyone follows you on whatsapp and instagram and facebook um, a lot of them were like you know you said you're gonna come last year for new year's um my friend's brother sister who was three at that time she still keeps asking for you when you're going to come for her birthday I am like you know I don't want to give any promises but I really want to come so we do a lot of video chats with them uh, usually there'll be one translator so I'll speak this guy who speaks a bit of English translates to the family and uh, they trans they speak to me and he translates uh, so yeah we, we've been keeping in touch with most of the families that I met along the way so it's been such a beautiful experience. I can't wait to go back and meet yeah. some of them if possible, just to say thank you, maybe cook a nice curry for them yeah. and stay with them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, Wow. It sounds like you have a
1: whole world of places to go to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, i have just scrapped the surface. I've been to like 33 countries, uh, but I think the human power travel was the best experience. I may have not seen a lot of Fancy places like what you see on Instagram and Facebook. And I don't care. Even with New Zealand, you know, there's so many more places that tourists go and take pictures of and everything. Uh, but through that human powered adventure uh, with that vulnerability as the key, sceneries you always forget, Steve. No matter how beautiful it is, it always vanishes from your head. What you remember is the kindness stories, you know, how people impacted you. It just shows you like, you know, humanity exists and it completely restores your faith in humanity. You know, when you see human trafficking where people are exploiting young children for sex and hard work and stuff, it kind of raises a lot of questions on humanity, right? Like, why would you do this? It's not like these people are doing it for their food, clothes and shelter. It's out of greed. They want to get more rich and rich that they are exploiting all these vulnerable people does humanity really exist, is the question that you get, you know, when I see some of the case studies of these survivors and victims that we rescue, and then on the other end of the spectrum, when you go on an expedition like this with very limited means, it just shatters your experience, you know, that it completely restores, personally, my faith in humanity, that the world is such, like, you know, still a very, very beautiful place.
0: Hmm.
1: I always remember a hobbit, where uh, Galadriel asks, you know, Elvis queen, she asked Gandalf, like, you know, like the biggest adventure, I mean, this ring, you gave this responsibility to a hobbit of all the people. And she would ask like, you know, on YouTube, if you just search why the halfling, uh, there'll be like this very beautiful video that comes up. So it'll say like, you know, even for a strong person, a wizard Mm -hmm. like Gandalf, he will say that he is scared and uh, Soroman will think that, you know, you need something extremely big and powerful to fight an evil uh, person. But he would say, it's not that, it's always um, the kindness, love, and the simple acts of kindness of everyday person that keeps evil at check. Uh, so that's just a beautiful statement, you know, in a very beautiful lesson that you see in Hobbit. And that's so true, you know, yeah. you don't fight evil uh, with like one big power. But it's every one of us joining hands together and uh, be loving, nice, and being kind to each other, you know, through very simple acts of kindness and love. That's all it needs, uh, the world needs to become like a more beautiful place. So, all my life lessons are from Lot of the in Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome.
0: It's, it's, it's fascinating, you know, that New Zealand kind of owns that now, whereas
1: Actually, it was written by a Brit, but never mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even when I finished the journey, uh, New Zealand Herald published a big story and uh, it was heartwarming. The story was Kiwi completes uh, a big mission, riding his bike from India all the way to Germany. That was like the biggest approval that I can get, right? That, uh, And I read a lot of online articles and comments that people were uh, posting. And uh, a lot of them were just saying, you know, like, see, this is why immigration is good. Uh, because, you know, he has done so much good just by moving to New Zealand and putting New Zealand on the world map,
0: yeah.
1: uh, wherever you go, it's like, you know, a Kiwi has done this Kiwi has done that. So maybe I give back because, you know, New Zealand has given me so much, uh, my very first experience of quitting, uh, the comfort zone and moving to this place. And, uh yeah, the kindness of people and what they've done to me. I think it will stay forever, you know, especially my experience uh, from Tierra that changed me a lot and helped me become the person that I am today, to to be honest.
0: Yeah. You're you're sounding a little bit like a hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) He's been given given
1: a a big mission. (laughs) The ring has to be destroyed. (laughs) I can't throw the ring by myself you know I think with everyone joining their hands together I think we can fight you know in every single way possible every child rescued you know one life saved but I don't see that as just one life right you've saved generations that child and his child and his child for generations they have been rescued so I think you know we just got to keep the fight going and uh, it's awesome that you know and so many good organizations around the world um, fighting you know taking all kinds of risk to keep this thing at bay Mm -hmm. so you for any kind of problem to solve you need to have that hope that one day you can completely solve this problem yeah Um, that's one of the reason being rotary health because like how we almost eradicated polio um, it's called end polio now that was their mission so when i got there uh, with all this big audience, the MC was putting me on the stage, asking everyone, so how many of you flew here? And everyone's hand automatically went up because how do you get to Germany other way? And she was like, okay, we have a delegate here who rode his bicycle all the way from India. And then you have everyone's attention already, even though it's like a boring conference. And, they, and by the time they unveil kindness, the tandem bike to them, then they're like what he wrote a tandem all the way where's the second person how far did he come and then you get this amazing stage it's a very humbling platform where you go and tell them how so many people helped and why you did this so we finished polio so it's end polio now but now I want them to take up a motto as end slavery now let's all do to ensure that you know we are not giving food clothes and shelter but freedom is the highest form of living that the human can have and that's all we are trying to give them—just the freedom to be a human and to live with dignity. And that was like, you know, a really well-received. It was like a huge success, finishing in Germany.
0: Hmm. Is it kind of um, your your own journey? You know, freedom from poverty—is it a big
1: thing that feeds into this? Definitely, you know, like I said, uh, when you're being like humiliated and insulted. Um, by your own friends who are a little well-to-do, it kind of like, you know, builds up inside. You you have this desire to prove someone so wrong, but you don't have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then I would definitely say I'm one of the luckiest to get away from it. i worked really hard and, you know, by God's grace and a lot of kind people's help, things lined up that, you know, I could escape from this, but there are so many more people out there who just can't escape it. Um, yeah I mean you know definitely um, my own upbringing living on like you know one meal a day with not too many clothes to wear your clothes are always torn you're being made fun of uh, it, it really feeds into it and I could really connect with uh, the people who don't have much you could re- you you don't have that like oh I live in the New Zealand I live in New Zealand and USA kind of thing I'm like I know what it feels like so when I go to the Uh, schools in the slums where I volunteer a lot they get like this huge hope right so when they see you traveling and everywhere they think that oh he must be another rich guy with some deep pockets coming here and lecturing us to dream big and have passion and stuff like that but then when I tell them the neighborhood that I grew up in their jaws are on the floor they're like whoa that's like way way worse than where we are If a guy from that kind of a neighborhood can go on to achieve things like this, there's definitely hope for us. You know, uh, we can also work hard and there are a lot of good people, teachers and NGOs to help them. All it takes is that burning desire to become something and prove something to become like a better person. And then you're like just sitting with them, sharing stories. And I speak for Indian languages so they kind of get like uh, too um, uh, anxious. If you're speaking in English, they can't understand, but it's a really cool thing, a lot of people do. So when you connect with them, sit on the floor, sharing a meal and speak to them in the local language, they ask so many more questions. They're like, oh, I don't have to be ashamed because I can't speak in English and I'll be speaking in um, gram- with grammatical errors. I said, don't worry, just speak in whatever language you speak. I think I can respond. And, uh, yeah, they all keep in touch. You know, they write to me asking questions, what to do, and you offer a little bit of help in any way possible. But I think just going and sharing stories with them opens up their eyes to the world and gives us hope that I can become something.
0: That's amazing. Hey, um, before we finish, one thing I'm really curious about is is how... Living in Chennai, India, did you come to be working for Lazarus Lake, who lives in Tennessee?
1: <laughs> so, um, COVID happened last year. I was going to start Freedom Seat USA last year. I was going to dip my wheel in the in California, and I was going to ride all the way to the Atlantic on the East Coast in DC, carrying this message and raise funds. Um, So April 1st was my adventure, and March 25, I was going to fly out of Chennai, and March 23rd, India shut down its borders due to COVID. So, you know, you've been spending six months of your life planning, preparing, everything. The bicycle is still ready in the U.S., ready to go, but I was stuck here. And that's when um, Lazarus Lake and I, we've been friends for a very long time. I lived in Tennessee as a part of my consulting job. Uh, when i was in the u.s for nearly three years so that's when i met him this infamous mythical character that everyone in the ultra running world talks about and then I really ran... real. <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't believe it until i saw him uh, i ran strolling gym and i met him there and then i ran wall state the 500 kilometer race that he puts that of course goes across tennessee and um, I ended up winning the race in the unsupported category that year. And that brought us really close. And then I attempted Barclay loosely. I had no business to be in the Barclay, but I was the sacrificial virgin as per his term. He thought I was going to suffer the most, but I managed to finish at least one loop. That was just my one, two years into running. I had no business to be at Barclay, but it was good to try. Um, so yeah, long story. Yeah, we, we, we stayed there. He calls me his adopted Indian son. Anytime he catches a rattlesnake, I'll be the first one to get a call. We'll fry it and eat it. He loves hot food. So I spent a lot of time in his house cooking hot curry and eating it. Um, then I moved to California and we always kept in touch through email and Facebook and stuff. So when GV Rat started, he put together this race, the great virtual race across Tennessee. Um, uh, We were expecting maybe like, you know, 2,000 or 3,000 people to sign up. But then the response was just way too overwhelming that he didn't have anyone. Like I said, even now it's not like an organized race. We don't have like a planned infrastructure in place to do it. It's just two people sitting and putting together an Excel and doing it. But the response was so big that he wanted help. Otherwise, he was going to cut short the registration to like maybe 5,000. And that was a perfect time for me because I had nothing else to do. I was really looking for some work and just to keep sane, you know, keep your mind occupied because India's shutdown was extremely strict. I can't even leave the house. My radius of movement was just 10 meters. I was locked inside the house for nearly seven months. So this was a perfect moment to uh, work and keep my... Um, head off the bad thing that was going on, so that's why I didn't do GV rat I can't go out and run uh, outside. Yeah. So I ended up like working. Uh, so we all ended up working together, setting up the platform overnight, and the rest is history. You know, you have that beautiful map on the wall. I do. I I have the buckle. Oh, cool. There's the buckle. um oh, nice. Like the great awesome.
0: virtual race across Tennessee. It's the only time I've ever been to Tennessee.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's probably there. so like a whole new course. This year's course is going to be beautiful. Uh, Gary's, I mean, last year, we didn't get a chance to write a lot of travel guides, see all the experiences of all the places that you are running through. But this year is going to be like a beautiful experience. A uh, lot of things I can't say. Gary will kill me, but you will see the course. It's going to be a beautiful course. A lot of good stories coming. Ooh, your way.
0: Maybe I'll have to have a go. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: um, th- were you involved in the um, Backyard Ultra as well? Yeah, um, I was in the States for like four months. Uh, ended up going there and this was a satellite event this year yeah Uh, we had like about 22 countries simultaneously running backyard at the exact same time Uh, I was taking care of um, the technology part of it in Gary's backyard this year
0: really oh wow it was I had a few friends I had a few friends running it in New Zealand
1: yeah oh yeah right Uh, Katie and Sean and uh, some of the names you know familiar names I was looking at them, and I was rooting for them, you know, because a piece of my heart is always in New Zealand. I'm like, come on, Sean, you can do it. Katie, you can do this. And whenever someone drops out, you know, you really get sad. Even now, you know, uh, India and New Zealand is going to play the test cricket in in, uh, Lourdes. It's World Championship. Honestly, I'm torn between two countries. I'm like, what do I do? Uh, Which country do I support? Oh, that must be tough as an Indian. It is, so... (laughs) I may mean, just, I can't be like too loud and outspoken for New Zealand to win. <laughs> India is like a billion people, they'll massacre me if I do anything like that out in the public. <laughs> you are here and you support black caps. Okay, we got to take care of this guy. Grab a bat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Hey, um, finally, how, how, how do you like running in sandals? I, I love it. Um, I mean, it's terrain allowing, right? You don't run a race like Northburn uh, in sandals. No. Uh, no, As long as it's like um, the terrain has to be like kind and like, you know, forgiving. If it's like way too sharp rocks and stuff. But for most of the races, it's perfect because especially with trail running, you go through so much of rocks and roots and mud and stuff like that. So it's just perfect way to just like you know you don't have to worry about blisters and stuff yeah i, I love it you know just uh, the guy that i'm i am like you know minimal at heart it's just a good way to connect to the ground and it's like nice and easy you don't have to worry too much about shoes and stuff so i don't know i think you know uh, evan might just say but i may be the only guy who has done root burn in sandals i ran root burn classic in sandals and uh i did part I've, I've of run, a i've run the track in sandals oh cool
0: but i haven't done the race but yeah
1: yeah and then i um naseby the one year i attempted i was doing it with shoes and sandals at night the year one year that i did it got so cold even a couple of socks was not helping so i was i switched to shoes in the middle of the night yeah. Uh, but yeah i love it you know i run in bedrocks and uh, we've been a partner with them for so long, and they customize it, and it's so good. You know, we have some people who run, walk around PCT, Appalachian Trail. A lot of people do Tierra walking in sandals these days as well. So yeah, I love it just for the for that fact. And in Chennai, it's like right now 34 degrees and 70% humidity. There's no way you can go anywhere in shoes. So sandals just works out so perfect. Running, biking, hiking, it's just one footwear. that uh, It's like one ring to rule them all, one sandal to rule them all. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: So um, are you, um, is Chennai opened up again? You know? uh,
1: they've opened up, but it's just a little bit sad to see that people are not following all the precautions. Uh, but also they hurt a lot, right? For seven months, the country was completely shut down a country of 1 billion people where 70% of them are so poor, they are daily wage laborers. You have to work every single day to put food on the table. So shutdowns and quarantine is like, maybe it's luxury for a lot of people, but for them, it's a big question for their survival. Mm So, yeah, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. It's, it's sad to see a lot of people not taking any precautions, but the country is doing great in terms of like administering uh, vaccines. They have crossed like almost uh, 10 million uh, people have been vaccinated already, uh, but a country of 1 billion people, that's nothing. So there's still a lot more work to do. There's a, suddenly a small spike in some regions and people are getting tested and getting vaccinated. Hope it doesn't uh, go to another lockdown like what happened. But, uh, yeah, otherwise, things are, like, normal. Like, for a lot of people, they act like as if COVID never happened or existed. hope it stays that way. Yeah, don't we all?
0: Yeah. Uh Naresh, it's been a wonderful chat. I think yeah, we've we'll been doing for Thank a very long time, mind. but we have to I, keep it uh, to uh, a listenable um, level. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> No, but really appreciate it. So good to see you here. And uh, thanks for having me in the show. Sorry, yeah. it took a long time back and forth with timing and stuff. But uh, it's a pleasure to be in your show. Thank you. No,
0: Thank you very much. And um, and if you, next time you're talking to Lazarus Lake, can you tell him to get in
1: touch? Because we'd love to interview him. Yeah, definitely. I'll see what he's up to. And uh, uh, he, he, he had plans to come to New Zealand last year, uh, to be right. at one of the event in 2019 yeah. or 2020, he had plans to travel to New Zealand, yep. but uh, to start kickstart one of the backyard to be at the start line. Yep. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So yeah, I'll definitely give him uh, your regards and try to bring him with me. Maybe we can show him our beautiful middle earth and give That's him some more and chips.
0: Yeah. Okay. Oh, awesome. uh, thanks you very much. It's been a wonderful discussion. Um oh, last thing, I'll 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 um I'll um link your documentary into the show notes. But oh, is there any any, any other things that you'd like, you know, for people to any other ways that you'd like people
1: to support? Uh, just my yeah. website and the documentary link would be great. Yep. Um a humble request would be to, you know, wherever they are, if not supporting Freedom Seat, Wherever they are, there's always an anti-trafficking organization, Uh, especially COVID has put a lot of uh, people in harm's way, especially children, Mm. Uh, vulnerable people have become even more vulnerable. So now is the time to really pick up the fight. So I would say like, you know, join hands with any charity organizations in your locality or neighborhood and help in any possible way, be it volunteering or giving a few dollars. That would be a huge help. And uh, yeah, you can link my website. They can reach out to me and i'll be able to point them uh in the right direction or they can help me and i'll make sure the funds goes to the right charity organizations and yeah link to the documentary would be great Mitrandir, why the halfling
0: i do not know saruman believes that it is only a great power they can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. i found it is... the small things. Everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay. Simple acts of kindness and love.
1: Why Bilbo Beckins? Perhaps it is because I'm afraid gives me courage do not be afraid Miss Randir you are not alone my boy Elephant.